From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 11, for Wednesday, the 25th of September, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, it is indeed Tom Winifrith, and I am indeed at 30 yards inside what is, as per normal, a rain-sodden Wales. If you run a small business, as I do, uh, you may be sensing seeing this already, but it seems to me that there is a general tightening of liquidity, something that happens at the end of a bull market and as uh, economies slip slowly into recession. If you're running a business, perhaps one of the things you might know is that your bank is no longer uh, writing to you saying, can we lend you some money? Can we help you invest your money? Uh, If you go to the bank asking to extend your overdraft, and thankfully uh, my business doesn't have an overdraft, uh, they get a little bit more antsy and start talking about doing a few more checks, uh, saying, well, maybe not at this time, or, or asking to see your books in a way they wouldn't have done a couple of years ago. Perhaps if you don't have to deal with your banks, which thankfully I don't, uh, you see it in that customers take just a little bit longer to pay their bills and suppliers just get a little bit more aggressive in chasing theirs. We see it, uh, maybe not yet in the equity markets, but we certainly see it in the bond markets. Uh, Over the past few days uh, or past few weeks, we've had serious minerals have to pull its bond offering, throwing its whole financial position into some sort of doubt. We've had Metro Bank having to pull its bond offering, and today we get a bond offering from Aston Martin. Uh, It has at least got it away, but it's got it away on quite remarkable terms. Aston Martin's bonds are rated at B3 by Moody's. That is to say, they are viewed as speculative. There is a good chance or at least a reasonable chance that bondholders won't get their money back. That's what the credit rating agency is telling you. And that is why uh, these bonds have been got away on a coupon of 12%. In certain circumstances, that coupon goes up to 15%. This is junk bond territory. When a company has to issue bonds, which uh, are only marginally cheaper than actually putting the bills on the company credit card, That is junk bond territory, and it is telling you that the company is finding it very hard to raise money. Uh, That it got it away at all is something of a miracle. Uh, I fear for Aston Martin, it has been a disastrous IPO, a product of the bull market. If we weren't in a bull market, Aston Martin, which has a long history of going bust and messing up, uh, would never have got its IPO away. Uh, Some of those who uh, pushed that IPO to retail investors, notably Hargreaves Lansdowne, should truly hang their heads in shame. Uh, Where Aston Martin is now, uh, I suspect, uh, it says that it's comfortable with its banking covenants as things stand. But given its history of missing forecasts all over the place, I wouldn't be so sure that that will be the position in six months' time. 
if indeed, if it somehow breaches its covenants, then uh, things will look truly terrible. I do not think it is beyond uh, the realms of possibility that Aston Martin will be a zero. As for Metro Bank, uh, the uh, shares are, as I speak, up on hope that people will come in, uh, someone will come in and make a bid for the operation. The thinking is that the shares trade as a discount to NAV, someone could come in and basically just wind the company up, uh, collect sums that are due, uh, and since the shares trade as a discount to NAV, they would make money. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, the thing is, you have to take a view on the quality of Metro Bank's loan book. It's got loans out to small businesses. I'm not sure uh, how that's going to do. Uh, it's got loans out to commercial property. I'm not sure how that's going to fare. And, of course, it has a huge mortgage loan book, and that is the area it's trying to grow. And, again, given what is happening to the housing market, the level of transactions is slowing, and there are all sorts of indications that house prices are falling, as indeed they should, uh, after a 10-year asset bubble, then, again, I'm not so sure uh, that that NAV is real and that there is that much money to be made from going through some sort of runoff. I bet the regulators would love it if there was an orderly runoff, but I'm not so sure that people are going to be biting. I slightly digress. My point is that the credit climate is tightening. Had Sirius uh, Keteris Paribus been two years ahead of schedule or two years ahead of where it is now and tried to get away that bond offering a couple of years ago, I think he would have got it away because people were prepared to throw money at everything. Ditto, Metro Bank, uh, ditto, Aston Martin. It would have got the bond offering away and possibly at a far lower coupon. The credit cycle is tightening, and that's because the banks also know that things are not looking so good. There are a lot of clouds on the horizon. The global economy is slowing, and whatever happens on Brexit, uh, the British economy is actually doing a lot better than many economies out there, notably uh, our friends on the other side of the English Channel. Uh, but still, our economy is slowing, and it will slow further as the global economy slows down. We are a trading nation. We will be impacted by it. Uh, there are asset bubbles, uh, car finance, uh, commercial real estate, uh, residential real estate. Uh, there are all sorts of asset bubbles out there waiting to burst. Uh, and therefore, there are uh, uh, issues that are going to be ahead. If the UK economy slows, there are going to be a lot of individuals and I suggest quite a few corporates who are going to be in deep trouble. And the banks know that. That is why it may be a uh, bolting the stable door after the horses or locking the stable door after the horses have bolted approach. That is why lenders, whether they be banks or bond providers, are getting more nervous uh, they are insisting uh, on great conditions. We see it with, with the Neil Woodford funds. Uh, they now have to pay more interest on their bank debt, and the banks are in a position to do that. So they're demanding uh, 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 tighter conditions on companies, on, on borrowers generally. Bondholders are, are getting skittish. They're pulling away from more speculative issues, and they're demanding a higher coupon on those that go ahead. All of that tells you uh, that the banks, bond providers, they tend to be slightly more savvy uh, than retail investors. They are telling you that things are going to get worse in the real economy. And that, of course, uh, will have a knock-on effect in the stock market. It will have a knock-on effect, especially for those companies which are indebted or which are running out of money and which need to refinance. It will be harder and harder for them to get debt finance. 
and therefore they'll have to come to equity providers and equity providers will, I suspect, be taking losses on those stocks, but also uh, more general losses on the market uh, because the market as a whole will surely have to go down. Uh, if you assume that the market is uh, a rational market, if we expect corporate earnings to go down next year or not to meet forecasts, which I do because the macro headwinds are so adverse, if we expect earnings to be lower, then Keshris Paribus, you would expect share prices to be lower. And that's without a derating, which is what you normally have when you go into a bear market. So equity provide, providers of equity will also be feeling skittish. They will be hurting uh, unit trusts. Uh, will be unable to provide finance because they will be seeing net redemptions. People will be nervous about shares. They will be nervous about riskier asset classes. So instead of putting money into the market, they will be taking money out of the market and stick it in, sticking it in the bank. They may only be getting 0%, but they feel that their capital is safer. So you'll find that unit trusts have less money to invest. They'll be suffering redemptions. Uh, that uh, may make it harder for companies to refinance, but it may mean that if unit trusts suffer redemptions, uh, they become forced sellers of equity, which adds to the general chaos of a bear market. This uh, 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 seems to me uh, to be something which is inevitable for 2020. And the signs are there, the early signs there are coming through from the debt and bond markets. They are giving a very clear signal to equity investors, which you should ignore at your peril. Of course, if you are invested in profitable cash generative businesses, uh, well, there may be uh, macro headwinds, and you should wonder what the exposure of the companies you're invested are are to the macro cycle. Some companies uh, uh, will be more vulnerable than others. But if your company is very profitable and has some sort of defensive qualities, then earnings shouldn't go down by too much. And that may well be partly reflected in the share price already. Uh, it shouldn't be a cause to panic. Uh, but if you are invested in riskier companies which are not generating cash and which have potential balance sheet issues or in companies which are very vulnerable to a macroeconomic downturn in terms of earnings visibilities, if you are in that position, then surely you should be considering rebalancing your portfolio now. You should be thinking carefully. Uh, this podcast is, as with all Share Profits Radio podcasts, free to access. And thank you to all those who do access it. If you are listening on iTunes, do me a favor and register to get it automatically with iTunes, to get it automatically downloaded to your phone. It saves me the trouble of alerting uh, and uh, uh, you'll find it automatically downloaded every Wednesday uh, to your phone. We don't charge companies to appear on this podcast I only invite companies who are of some interest to me. Uh, today's CEO is CEO of a company where I own shares, uh, but I think I gave him a fairly tough old time, and he's an interesting character anyway. That I'm able to bring you this podcast for free is thanks to the sponsorship of Yorkville Advisors, uh, who provide a range of financing options for smaller companies uh, across this planet. Uh, England, uh, Britain rather, included. Uh, the findings can be straight equity uh, or debt or convertible debt. Now, I know people will shout the word death spiral, uh, 
Uh, I don't believe that all convertible debt offerings are uh, debt spirals. Some are structured uh, well, some are structured badly. But in bear market times, having access to any finance at all should be a relief. I do believe that Yorkville uh, is one of the classier operators in this sector. Uh, Some of the operators should frankly be in prison for usury. Anyhow, if you are the CEO of a CFO and want to find out more about Yorkville, uh, go to yorkvilleadvisors.com. And uh, if you get in contact, make sure you mention this fine podcast. Thank you to Yorkville. Now, how about I interview a CEO? My guest today on Share Profits Radio is Andrew Bell. Uh, he is, as many folks will know, the uh, boss of AIM listed Red Rock Resources, and I should declare that I am a small shareholder in that company. He's been involved in the mining space for a lot of long time, and I wanted to talk about uh, uh, the gold price a bit later, but he's also the prospective parliamentary candidate for the Buckingham constituency for the Brexit party. Buckingham is currently the seat of that little shit, John Burkow, the Speaker of the House of Commons, but he will be standing down at the next election and it will then uh, presumably be a safe Conservative seat unless Andrew wins. Andrew, welcome to the show on a momentous day in British politics. Yeah, well, it seems to be a momentous one these days. Uh, we have momentous days every day. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court has just uh, said that Parliament can't be prorogued uh, whatever that means. Uh, there's talk about how Boris Johnson may face a vote of no confidence. Uh, how do you, as a lifelong Tory before you joined the Brexit Party, how do you see this playing out? Will Britain leave the EU? Who will be Prime Minister this time next week? <laughs> well, I've never before seen a Prime Minister so anxious to have a vote of no confidence against him. You would assume, having having after this decision in the Supreme Court, uh, that the Labour Party has to call a vote of no confidence in Johnson. Uh, yes. I mean, they, they're saying, of course, they don't really want election, but what they're saying is that they want to rule out what they call a no-deal Brexit, or you might call a clean Brexit, before they have an election. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, every day brings some new surprise. Uh, And I think I was extremely surprised as someone who does have a law degree or two and had studied the matter quite carefully. I was extremely surprised by today's judgments that smacked to me of the political. And I don't care what anyone says, I will criticize the Supreme Court because I think they made a really grievous error today. Uh, well, many of us just view it as the establishment ganging up upon uh, 17.4 million of us again to de- de- deny us what we want, which is Brexit. But presumably after this judgment, there has to be a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. Well, uh, yes. And everyone says they want a vote of no confidence, but uh, you know, they just don't want it yet. A bit like St. Augustine, who said, Lord, make me good, but not just yet. Okay, well, do you think that at some stage there will be a vote of no confidence? Unquestionably, yes. And presumably Boris Johnson will lose that vote. Well, up till now, you always have made the assumption 
But it wouldn't surprise me a bit these days to see a vote of no confidence where the Labour Party actually votes against it or abstains rather than see an election. Do you think there will be an election? Yes. I think that uh, no matter what stratagems there are to avoid it or delay it, it can't be long delayed. Because those who are seen to stand in the way of it will eventually look so ridiculous that it will damage their cause. I saw uh, Diane Abbott at the Labour Party conference yesterday talking and saying, bring on the election, bring it on. Uh, yes, this is a woman who just voted against one twice in the House of Commons. Quite. Uh, so you think there will be an election. Um, do you think we'll be leaving the EU on uh, the 31st of October? Well, um, it, if, if one were a betting man, one would probably be putting money on that not happening. So you don't. So it, that would mean that the EU have to grant us an extension. Yes, I mean, the EU would grant an extension. What will be interesting is that uh, if they put any conditions on the extension, because the current extension, the condition was, among other things, that the withdrawal agreement wouldn't be reopened in discussion, and of course it has been. Now, in order to uh, judge that the Queen's consent, that really means the government's consent, wasn't necessary for the Ben Bill, now the Ben Act. Uh, one of the things they avoided doing was tying um, the administration too closely, so that at the moment they are bound to accept if the extension is to the 31st of January, um, they would have to take it back to Parliament with 48 hours to approve if it's any other date, but what if they attach conditions? There's nothing in the Ben Act to say the government has to accept the conditions. So if they attach conditions, uh, Boris Johnson, if he's still Prime Minister, could just say, we're not accepting the conditions, therefore we leave on October 31st. Well, that's quite clear, really. However, I think Parliament would try to do something about that, but we could have more interesting things happening. You say interesting. Most of us just want to get on with our lives. Uh, this seems to be an obsession of a small group of individuals uh, who, frankly, uh, you know, if there was an asteroid strike, none of us would really care. Well, I mean, everybody, including the Lib Dems from 2009, said they wanted the referendum. But when they all wanted it, it's because they all assumed they knew the result. Yes. OK, so... um. Uh, at some stage, there's an election. Um, aren't you um, uh, in the Brexit party? Well, first, just on the subject of Brexit, you wanted Brexit. You, you obviously voted for it. You campaigned for it. Um, do you accept that uh, a no deal or a hard Brexit is going to cause economic pain for this country, but take the view that it's worth it for the democratic gains? Or do you actually believe that such a Brexit would be good news for the economy? Well, I looked recently at a speech made by a anti-common market politician six or seven years after we joined in 1974, was it four, 73, and um, he said that everyone agreed, you know, the people who were proposing it, that there would be some transitional cost that would affect the economy 
And in fact, over the last five or six years, the cumulative cost has been more than they expected. And uh, if you put that in current money terms, at least adjusting for current GNP, the effect has been about £28 billion negative. So, of course, we don't look back on that now and say we have a smaller economy as a result, because many things happen. Uh, in the same way, I think it would be ludicrous to deny that if we leave, there will be some transitional costs. And I think that was very clearly made by everybody, even though we accepted the voters did not uh, buy Project Fear. I think most of them will have accepted there will be some cost of leaving, but in the cause of self-rule, they thought it worthwhile to have that cost. There were a lot of people who thought they would be better off. They thought that they wouldn't have uh, uh, be losing their jobs to cheap labour from Eastern Europe. Oh, a lot of people believe they will be better off as a result of leaving the EU. And I think that is, that is the case. I mean, some of the assumptions made about the economic growth of the country by 2028 that I remember came out from the Treasury were posited on the basis of quite high levels of immigration. Uh, now, if you bring in people who are going to wait, work for $10 a year and you bring in enough, say a billion, then the economy is going to be much bigger. But the... Uh, GDP per head is going to be lower, and the people who are being whose jobs are being competed for by those one billion willing to work for ten dollars are of course going to be much less happy than the people living in nice houses who find an almost infinite supply of willing gardens. Right. So, so you accept that if we leave with either no deal or a hard deal, there will be some economic cost, but you believe it will be transitional. The economy, a capitalist economy, will evolve. Uh, yes. And uh, that within that economic cost, there will be segments of the population that have not seen any increase in their wages for many years that will actually start to pull ahead. If you remember Lord Rose, formerly of Marks and Spencer, when he was chairing Remain, and he gave a press conference, he, he said that this was the most terrible thing. You do realize that if we leave, wages are going to go up, at which point they put him in a box and didn't let him do any more interviews. <laughs> okay, so it will benefit those who've missed out on uh, the economic uh, miracle or boom that we've had over the past few years, the asset bubble. Uh, and it, it will, we will help them. Um, but there will be a cost. If there is a no-deal Brexit, just how bad will it be? Will we all catch uh, strains of super gonorrhea? Will the planes fall out of the sky? Will I be unable to get my medicines for my diabetes? Will there be people fighting for food in the shops? Will the price of food go up? If we voted to leave, the mere act of doing so would cause the economy to fall and all sorts of plagues of locusts and things would start almost immediately. That didn't happen. We've had the fastest growing economy in Europe. Uh, if you remember in 1998 or thereabouts, everyone was talking about the Y2K and supposedly planes were going to drop out of the sky, computers were going to stop working, you couldn't get money from your bank, or because of an extra two digits on the date which computers were not equipped for. And I happened at the time to have a little spare cash. And I lent money to someone who had a company in America that was listed on, uh, that was uh, in a small way listed, uh, that was 
developing a supposed cure for this. And I'm happy to say the price shot up and I managed to sell. But I knew at the time that it was ridiculous. None of these things happened. Sure enough, it was year 2000, and not one plane dropped out of the sky. Uh, you know, we, we, if hopes were dupes, fears may be liars. You know, things are never quite as bad or as good as they're painted. On the whole, this great British economy will just continue trudging along. Right. Uh, do you um, accept that uh, uh, the Brexit Party, uh, if it stands in as a general election, uh, you're going to cost the Tory party seats? Well, it all depends on the conditions. Uh, it is, I think, generally accepted that in some places like Wales, in the north of England, you could not get people to vote for a Conservative. And I think, a, uh, but if you put a, a Brexit Party rosette on them, maybe okay. I mean, a good example of that was Anne Whittacombe, who if she'd gone up to the north to a predominantly working men's audience and spoken as a conservative, she'd have probably got a raspberry. She went up there recently as a Brexit party leader and was cheered to the echo. In other words, a lot of the people who vote Labour for tribal reasons in the north actually have quite uh, traditional views not just on Brexit, but on a number of related issues. Uh, so I think the Brexit party is very clearly perceived and has been uh, perceiving this actually since 2000, uh, well, you know, and his predecessors, Nigel Farage and people around him have perceived it for quite a long time that uh, the possibility of replacing Labour in the North is quite strong. Uh, I think a lot of people who voted for UKIP even were actually working class. Uh, I'm not sure that in the European election, when UKIP stood or when Brexit stood in the European election, there weren't more working class people voting for those parties than actually for Labour. Uh, you have to think, therefore, that the sensible thing for the Conservatives, faced with possible losses in uh, Scotland and a potential threat from the Lib Dems in parts of London and the Southwest, might conclude that picking up seats in the north that the Conservative couldn't possibly win by doing an electoral pact would make sense. And the Brexit Party and Nigel Farage have made perfectly clear that in circumstances like those, they would stand down a whole mass of people. And of course, including I, you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you get two and a half thousand candidates or whatever at an election, only 650 get elected. Most of the ones who don't know quite well they're not going to get elected, but they are showing the flag and representing a point of view, just as you do jury service. It's a form of public service, I think. Mm, ego trip. Um, is um, the, uh, you, you say that, but the Conservatives have ruled out doing a pact with the Brexit party. Uh, at the moment, they say they're not going to do a pact. If you go into the election with no pact and you are standing against each other, uh, you are going to usher in uh, a Jeremy Corbyn-led coalition of chaos government, are you not? Therefore, six people are rational. They will face off till the last moment, and then they will come to an agreement. But to signal that you're going to come to an agreement in advance demoralizes your troops. You don't do it. So you still expect that if there is an election within the next two or three months, and you are expecting that, that there will be a 
some informal pact between your party and your former party, which will see uh, the Brexit party standing in maybe 100 seats in the north uh, and the odd one elsewhere, and the rest of the place giving the Tories a clear run. Well, it's not for me to negotiate on behalf of anybody, but uh, <laughs> I think that you, like me, will see where rational self-interest would lie. Right. That will be rational self-interest. If, if, if there is no deal done, though, uh, will you not feel rather bad that you've let Jeremy Corbyn into number 10? We're talking hypotheticals here. Yes. And, uh, as I say, I think the reality of the situation is that um, nobody wants that. Uh, the Brexit Party wouldn't want it because it would put paid to the idea of leaving at all. The Conservative Party wouldn't want it for very obvious reasons, because the one thing they want to avoid more than anything else is Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. So whether it's national level or whether it's local level, um, I think however it's done, um, people will avoid a conflict that results in them gifting uh, seats to the other side. Let us uh, assume a worst-case scenario, uh, which is that Jeremy Corbyn is the next Prime Minister after an election. Uh, I think it's hard to imagine him uh, having an overall majority, uh, but by prom promising the SNP a referendum whenever they want it, uh, he may well get a, a supply agreement with the SNP uh, in the same way as the DUP has propped up the Conservative Party. Um, the SNP, uh, they're pretty sort of hard left themselves. Events at the Labour Party conference this week, um, if the Labour Party implemented what they have proposed at their conference this week, just how damaging would that be for the economy? Uh, well, I, I find it very difficult to believe they could do all of that. But some of the ideas, of course, they have come up with are just completely bonkers and insane. Like a four-day working week. Now, a four-day working week will work fine in the public sector. <laughs> in fact, it'll cause, as I was pointing out to people, an enormous growth in the blob, which will then become one of Britain's high-growth industries, as you'll have to recruit 25 extra, 25% extra people to do the work currently being done, apart from the normal growth in the blob, which takes place. Uh, and, you know, in schools, you'll have to recruit more teachers in order to, um, you know, fill in the gap and teach the classes. All through the system, the costs will be huge. The idea that people are going to accept uh, that they... Yeah, yeah, you know, look at the government. The government is going to have to pay 25% more teachers in order to teach the same amount. Uh, that's just in the education sector. Multiply that. Now, ultimately, the government can do it. But the private sector, the private sector is not going to be able to do that. It isn't going to do it. Um, it, it is just going to be another boondoggle for the public sector, which, after all, is what Labour represents now. They represent the unions. The unions are now all representing middle-class public sector workers in the South. And Labour MPs are more than 90% graduates and more than 60% uh, middle-class guys from the South. They, okay. they, they can do that. It'll have horrendous effects, but then these guys are not economists. Then they have the idea of giving away 10% of uh, companies' shares and uh, 
they'll want to increase taxation. By the time they finish with all of this, there wouldn't be much of an economy left. And you have to believe that at some stage they realize that and would stop. Well, at some stage they would, uh, as Margaret Thatcher observed, uh, the problem with socialists is eventually they run out of other people's money. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they would find it impossible to raise fresh debts. You'd have a Greek-style crisis. But if, even if they implemented only half of their daft measures, uh, uh, um, 60 billion going on free electric cars for everybody, even if they implemented only half of these measures, uh, it would still be easily the most left-wing government we've seen in this country ever. Oh, yes. Uh, if we come to a, I mean, with your stock market hat on, if we come to a situation where we're coming up to a general election and it, and we, it looks like we could have uh, the coalition of chaos or a Corbyn outright uh, government, what do you think that would do to the value of the FTSE 100? Uh, the market is very good at anticipating things that things are going to be adverse. And... Um, I think people would see that as adverse. It's very difficult to see any good effects. Um, I think sterling would obviously fall again. Uh, nobody would want to invest in shares. Uh, I think a lot of people would want to potentially leave the country. I mean, I don't know how it would work out, but it might be that a whole lot of people would say it's not going to be so bad, it's not going to be so bad, he doesn't really mean all of this stuff, and then after about a year is when they realise. So I think it would be a constant sapping of confidence over a period. Wouldn't when you say a lot of people leave the country, uh, it would be a lot of people in the top one, two, three, four, five percent of earners, entrepreneurs, <laughs> etc., and then with goose and golden eggs. Yeah, all the non-dom people would be out. It sounds just, I mean, I don't want to be accused of doing project fear here because we leave that to other people, but it does sound like a very scary prospect. Yeah, I think it is, because what's scary about it is not a specific programme, but the evidence that they show again and again, they don't really understand how an economy works or what creates wealth. Uh, and therefore, they're going to make mistakes because they working on a conceptual framework, which is, in the case of McDonald's, and I suspect to some degree Corbyn uh, and Abbott and one or two of the others, which is just completely Marxist. I mean, it, the worrying thing is, when you hear that they don't read normal newspapers, but the, the top people in the Labour Party now, their morning reading is the morning star. I don't think there's ever been a time in uh, post-war history, when the, uh, the the main office holders in the Labour Party regarded that as their essential reading and mistrusted all other papers. Is the, you know, let's move on, it's too depressing. Do you believe that I mean, UK shares have underperformed uh, American shares, for instance, uh, for a considerable period? And we talk about how the FTSE is at near all-time highs. <laughs> But actually, relative to indices in most other developed countries, it's been a pretty bad performer. Is that down to fears about Brexit? Or is it down to the fact that there is inherent political risk in this country that 30 or 25 percent of the electorate are quite happy to vote for Marxists? Well, I think or is it just that we're an inefficient economy? 
I think there are two uh, effects that it's worth noting. Three, in fact. One is some stimulative effect from what Trump has been doing, the positive aspects of that. Uh, secondly, I think that the American economy was much better prepared, much stronger for some unwinding of QE, and therefore has been more resilient to it because of other factors that take place at the same time and so on. Uh, and in this case, we haven't really so much unwound QE as stopped it. Uh, and the third factor, I think, is perhaps related to those. Uh, people have a lot of their money tied up in housing, and the decline in the housing market has created a reverse wealth effect in that people maybe have less of a propensity to borrow and to spend and do things than they might otherwise have done. I mean, the fact that the economy has actually been pretty strong, but the financial markets have been not so strong, does just imply there is less liquidity around. And I think uh, the parts of the market that really depend on the extra liquidity, the frothy liquidity, um, for example, AIM companies, for example, ex mining exploration companies and so on, AIM, that effect is intensified. But I think it's liquidity factors. Okay, let's, before we come to the AIM market, Red Rock in particular, and one or two issues with AIM, uh, one asset class which is doing very well is gold. Uh, gold uh, is against most currencies now at an all-time high. Uh, it uh, is still a way off against the US dollar, but it will. It, there are many people who think it will get there. What is driving the strength of gold? I mean, gold is a curious one because sometimes gold behaves like a currency. Sometimes it behaves like a store of value. Sometimes it behaves like a counterinflationary hedge. Uh, the last four or five years, it has actually been behaving like a currency. And you could say it's the second strongest currency after the US dollar. Uh, and I think that's partly because there's no great primary trend of, of central banks de-stocking or anything like that at the moment. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's, and there's no one dominant producer. I think it's just reflecting supply and demand in the market and the perception of it as, as a quasi-currency. Isn't the gold price driven uh, to a large extent by uh, ETFs and speculation, uh, and therefore, actually, it's pretty meaningless? Uh, maybe. I mean, the thing about the gold market is so many very smart people are involved in it, but however smart one is, one never has a better than 50% chance of being right. Uh, my, my feeling is that the, there are enough factors in favour of gold for it to be holding its own. And so it's pleasantly surprising to see it slightly increasing, being a relatively strong currency. I think that perhaps that's because of supply demand. Supply hasn't quite kept up. Because after all, when uh, interest... And, and there may be another factor. When interest rates are as low as they are, the incentive to hold currencies rather than gold may at the margins disappear. Is, is, I mean, we can understand why uh, uh, many currencies are weak, because their economies, uh, there are real problems. We know that Australia has appalling problems. We know that the Chinese economy has got real problems, or bogus data and real problems. Uh, the Eurozone goes without saying. Uh, the UK economy is slowing. Uh, even the American economy, there are some worrying signs there. 
uh, the number of layoffs, the number of CEO firings. I hope it's not a sensitive subject for you. Uh, uh, the, those, are, those are slightly worrying signs. And it is possible uh, that the next president of uh, the United States will be um, some lunatic like, uh, well, take your pick from the democratic field, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Well. I mean, all of those things would, would make me think that there are reasons not to hold any physical currency. Yeah. And probably there are some people who think like that. I mean, I, I, quite, I think gold is going to be on balance strong. Uh, I'm aware that there are a lot of people who are very smart who think that it'll have a slight setback first and then go to new highs. And there's also always people who are permanently bullish on gold. Uh, but taking a fairly moderate view looking at the factors, uh, my feeling is that the balance is slightly in favour of gold. Were you not tempted uh, to ditch gold and think about Bitcoin? No. Would you like to elaborate on that uh, answer? I think that uh, to using Bitcoin as a currency or a medium of uh, uh, transactions is very difficult. The increasing length of the you know, the, tra the trail that each Bitcoin has to carry behind it, the slow processing speed uh, of Bitcoin transactions Compare the limited number that can be transacted compared, for example, with the visa system and the hostility of central banks to it, uh, in my view, create headwinds that cannot be overcome. And therefore, you can't view it as a currency? No. And you certainly can't view it as a store of value, given that it was $20,000 um, uh, less than a year or a year and a half ago and is now 10 and was 4 it's not, it can't therefore have a store of value status. Uh, that's right. And it's also proved astonishingly easy to, uh, to mount bank rates. Yeah, whereas gold, obviously, we just all bury in our garden. Okay, let's move, move, move on from Bitcoin to the AIM market. Now, you know, you get a fair degree of criticism um, uh, for, uh, from uh, people. I remember having a conversation with you 10 years ago as your shares went through the roof, uh, warning you that there would come a time when uh, you were no longer uh, 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 the hero of the day. And I was saying that to people as well. How do you react to the criticism that you get? Well, no, if you're not being criticised, you're probably dead. Um, so it's probably better to be criticised. But the other thing is I'm aware of a fundamental mismatch between investors' expectations, which are for short-term gains, and the policies necessary to create success in the mining market. Uh, the, the minerals have been there, have been accumulating for many millions, or even hundreds of millions of years. Uh, the discovery process takes years, and usually there you're on the shoulders of other people who've explored the area, increased the geological understanding. Then you have to, uh, when you discover you have to do further exploration in order to get a resource, and then you have to develop it. That's how you play this. Uh, and whatever deals you do, even if you guard these things as for buying and selling, and don't stay there until production, um, which may very often be the case, uh, you are still talking about longer time frames than the investor finds it easy to accommodate. 
I mean, London, don't get me wrong, I think London and the other mining markets are brilliant in their ability to fund, fund exploration because nowhere else in the world does. And in many cases, they find it completely inconceivable that companies that go quarter after quarter or year after year without producing profits should still be able to raise money. So we have a market that is able to discount and look to the future um, and take risks, but we have to recognize that it's only a small part of that market that will do this. And uh, even when you're doing it, sometimes you have to try to make things look as if they're happening quicker. And I notice that some of the companies on AIM that get uh, and have over the last few years got rises in their price. I look at it from the point of view of someone who's been a mining analyst and run a company. And my idea always is I look at something and say, will that make mine? Can we get it into production? And if it isn't, I'm really not interested. And yet I see these things that quite evidently, to my mind, are never going to make mines. And they're very popular, and the management is very popular. And so, I mean, we are a small, a very small company, but we have been present at uh, enough new mines coming into production for it perhaps not to be a complete coincidence. You, I mean, you talk about uh, uh, companies on AIM being able to raise quite a lot of money, and mining companies have raised money on AIM successfully for 25 years. I think the, the, the problem that investors have is that, by and large, investors have lost money as a result of these fundraising processes. Yeah, I think that's true, because uh, the great majority of exploration projects are never going to make producing mines. So the mortality rate at each stage is very high. And I don't think investors take a, a, that kind of approach. They want to, uh, like putting money on something in the lottery, they want to put their uh, bets on one or two companies' situations. Whereas, in fact, it is a bit of a game of averages. You can't tell when you start drilling whether something is going to work out. You can have very good drilling results all the way, but when you come to the feasibility, it just doesn't quite make it, particularly if prices are moved. So a relentless focus on what will make a mine, what can come into production, is probably the only way to go, but it is not a strategy that the market willingly finances, and we struggle with this all the time. But, 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 you, but isn't the reality that so many AIM companies are promoting projects which have been around for years and they say, oh, yes, Rio Tinto did some drilling in the 1970s and so-and-so did some drilling in the 80s and so-and-so in the 90s. Well, for fuck's sake, if three companies have done a whole load of drilling and abandoned the prospect, why should you be any different this time around? Well, I kind of agree. It, it, it's what I used to call the Australian dentist syndrome. You go to the Australian dentist and he looks at your teeth and he says your last dentist was a bushwhacker. And yeah, you know, they can always do better. But, uh, but they can't. They can't. If, 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 company, if an, an area has been explored and found non-commercial three or four times, why the hell should it be different? Generally speaking, it's true. I mean, there are some factors go the other way. Where's the easiest place to find a mine? Sort of near, near an existing mine, or an existing mine. Uh, so you, 
yeah, but, but the basic thing is that you explore and the initial stages of exploration are exciting, the price goes up. Everything you do then in mine development, <clears throat> drilling out your prospect, uh, doing a feasibility, which is probably a loan use period of a year or two, and then development. You go through long periods where you don't have the news flow to which the market is addicted at frequent intervals. And what is missing, I think, is that intermediate layer between the explorers who do a good job because exploration by big companies uh, is quite difficult because they have expensive staff who need a lot of support and, uh, and uh, small companies can operate on I know investors don't think so, but quite low cost basis and find things. But then when you want to progress these things, assuming they're good, um, the market really isn't there. And that results in a lot of companies actually knowing better, but prostituting themselves to stay alive. And you, say, you say on relatively low cost basis, can I just pick you up on that? Yes. After the after the, uh, the gold price collapsed, whenever it was, 2010, 2011, a whole load of mining companies went bust. Uh, a whole load of others fired their management. There is no shortage of managers for mining companies. Yet, uh, if one glances through a few annual reports, uh, um, you see people on quite obscene salaries. I think this is true. And if you, if you take even the smallest company on any, let's assume that just in order to pay people to do some kind of a job, and to meet all the regulatory and other requirements and produce an annual report and you know, have a nomad and a, uh, a broker and a lawyer and all these things. Let's assume that you can't really do it for less than 500,000 pounds, probably a certain amount more. Now let's assume just 400,000 pounds. That means any company with a market capitalization of 2 million or less has to make 20% a year to stand still and uh, even Warren Buffett can't achieve that on a consistent basis. And if any of us could, we wouldn't be in this business. We'd be uh, fund managers and we'd be among the richest people in the world. So it is a loser's game at the low end. Um, and that's, that's undoubted. So well, what's, what's the answer to that? What's the answer, what's the answer to that, uh, Andrew? I mean, I would agree with you that companies under 2 million on AIM are doomed. They're, they're never going to get out of that thing. They, the share price might go up because they're being ramped, uh, but they're not worth any more and they are trapped in this problem. Yeah, so what, what people would say is that if you're a million or two million, easier to get from that to five million than to get from five to ten. And if you're on five million, then you can raise money, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stuff. So I see people playing those games. Um, but the, the, the real long-term game of taking a project, as we, we have done, sticking with it, trying to make it work over a long period of years, um, I don't see a lot of people doing that. Do you think, we'll come back to mining in a, uh, specifically in a second, do you think that um, uh, perhaps one of the reasons that uh, people are rather pissed off with them is that there is so much uh, uh, corruption and fraud and companies telling lies? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you agree with me? Well, I, I mean, I agree. And I also think that, um, uh, yes, I, I, I agree. Sometimes lies is too strong a word. People are 
over-optimistic, shoot a bit of a line. And I think there's something wrong structurally slightly with AIM, in that I think uh, AIM itself is a rotten regulation, it's trying to be a regulator. The only, and also, uh, the, the London Stock Exchange, the only thing it really wants, as it tries to do its big deals, take things over or not get taken over, what it really wants is nothing to happen at AIM that is going to destroy its reputation. But with all the different class tests on so many different parameters, ultimately, if you can't, uh, just if you stick within all those class tests, then ultimately every company disappears because they all got their own backsides because you can't progress. So it doesn't really make sense the way it's structured. And the, the rules don't really work. And my idea is you've got depart nomads who get harassed by AIM as intermediaries. You've got AIM that doesn't really know what it's doing uh, to empower everybody. I would like to see go back to self-regulation and make the nomads and maybe the brokers, certainly the nomads, take responsibility and own the market. Sorry, how does that work? These are the nomads who sign off on uh, RNS statements, which are patently untrue, and do no due diligence, and don't get any comeback uh, when they don't do their job properly. Uh, you think they should be in charge of regulation? I think they should be regulating each other, because peer group pressure would then start to do the job. Hmm. Wouldn't just a simpler thing be that if a company was caught telling a lie, that the uh, uh, executive who put his name to the release uh, be slung off the market? <laughs> but then, what is a lie? Um, uh, what is a lie? Well, I, I should take some of this week's events. Uh, <laughs> companies, companies saying we have a, a modest working capital requirement when in fact they need three million quid uh, uh, to pay the uh, so they can pay the payroll after mid-November. Hmm. That sounds like a lie to me. Brady PLC. Okay. Um, uh, you know, what is a lie? Uh, time and time again, uh, Andrew, on share profits, we've shown, uh, you know, go back to your old theft and resources. We have drilled four wells. Well, no, actually, you've only drilled three. Our production, this, uh, our monthly production is averaging 150 barrels a day. Well, no, actually, it's not. It's under 100. Those were lies. Well, as kind of guardians of companies, I'm not saying all nomads are perfect, just as no parents are perfect, but just as I think the voucher system works, it's been shown to work, because if you give responsibility for their education to even the poorest parent, that basic instinct to transmit culture to bring up their children kicks in, and they actually don't do a bad job. I think if you give the nomads, the practitioners, control of the market, you would actually find that they would make a success of it. Because although individually, many of them may be idiots. Or idiots, penal, corrupt, useless, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you put them together and there would be a kind of evolution of responsibility and commitment that would change things for the better. Trust the people. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I think your own dear nomad is, is, is Roland uh, Cornish, isn't it? Who I think is actually, by the way, an extremely good nomad. I know you're not a great fan of his, but... This is the man who, uh, this is the man who floated New World Oil and Gas, uh, uh, not bothering to do a Google check to see that uh, the chief executive was deemed a flight risk by a Texas court for defaulting on a debt on a yacht. Well, you, you know, because of the difficulty that nomads have had in checking up on people, 
uh, all of them now. <laughs> well, they don't know how to use Google. Well, no, I mean, what they all do now. Can you think I should go and do classes? I'll charge you a thousand quid a day. I'll teach you how to do a Google search. All right. Um, if, if we want to have a new director now, for example, we go to the nomad and he fills in his personal information form and all of that. The nomad will then employ uh, a third party agency at considerable cost that we meet uh, to go and check up on that person and do the things they're specialized in that the nomad is not necessarily specialized in. Um, so that is something that has changed for the better. And I think there will be fewer problems in the future than in the past. Because before, each nomad was having to do it for himself. And, you know, people like, who is your man, Uzi something or other? Who has Uzi Katz. Uzi Katz, different spellings of his name. Um, people like that could slip through the, the net. Perhaps mm. you can, but you may be a bit more difficult. Mm. Right, okay, let's move on from, from Amy specifically uh, to Red Rock, where I provide people I am a shareholder. Um, the, the share price is today is what? Uh, the share price is about 0.5 of a penny. What was it at its peak, Andrew? Um, well, if, if we go back to 2015 or so when it was nominated, which is you know, all I can um, go back to, uh, it's, it's been up to since then to about 0.7 or 0.8, I think. Um, I mean, basically... It's good old days, 2009, 2010. All right, yes, yes. Back then, um, with fewer shares in issue, it got up. There was a speculative peak in 2010 at about 1920 pence for a day or two. And, and actually, wasn't there, was, there was a research note from the uh, convicted felon Charlie Gibson of Edison Research uh, at a target price of, what was it, 64p? Well, quite possibly. Everyone was looking at gold in the ground at that point and uh, putting a value on inferred resources, on indicated resources, on uh, proven resources, different figures for different markets like uh, South Africa, uh, Canada, UK, Australia. And that will give you a basic value of what you should be valuing for that. And um, of course, most of those valuations of companies back in 2010 look crazy now. Many of those companies don't exist. Yeah. No, it's just Charlie Gibson, with no suggestion that he should stick to beating up policemen in drunken rage and, and quit the analyst game. Um, but uh, so at half a P, what's the market cap? Uh, about 3.2, 3.3 pence. 3.2, uh, 3.3 million pounds, I think. 3.3 P, that really would be a worrying thing. Um, 3.3 yeah. million. Uh, what's the, you know, your, your, your most tangible assets is you've got a stake in a company called Jupiter, which is an Australian company. Is it listed? Uh, it is listed in Australia, yeah. And what's, what's the value of your stake in Jupiter? I would think that at the moment it's about 3.5, 3.6 million pounds. So you're trading at a discount to the value of your stake in Jupiter? That is correct. Uh, and, of course, Jupiter is trading at what we think is a discount to what should be its value. It's very profitable. Uh, it's a seven, eight hundred million dollar company, it, uh, eight hundred million more or less, I think now, uh, Australian, and it's on a yield of probably last year would be over twenty percent. This year 
I think will clearly be in double figures and could be in good double figures. So your thought price... Yield's that high, isn't it, telling you that there's um, something wrong? Isn't Mr. Market saying something's wrong? No, because again, you look back and when Jupiter was developing the manganese mine in South Africa, uh, the price got up to 90 cents or so. Money was raised, I'm sure, at 80 cents uh, from a number of the, the best-known institutions in Australia and the Netherlands. And uh, then we developed the mine, came in on time, on budget. Uh, pretty, yeah, pretty much, I think that's true, on time and on budget. And we ended up, a couple of years later, with a whole lot of cash on the balance sheet and with a mine that was just being completed. And our share price was down to five cents. And that was the market. And, of course, the public float wasn't very great, but it didn't matter how much you told people, look, we've gone from this to actually having a mine, and the price has come down over over 90%. What sort of sense does that make? So we took it company private. And then after we produced uh, dividends and things for uh, three, two or three years, we brought it back on the market at 40 cents, which, of course, was about eight times the low and four or five times the price at which it was taken off the market. And uh, now it took uh, over a year, it dipped, because you know, Australia has not been a strong market the last year. And now the last few days it is uh, beginning to establish itself above the listing level. And I just think it is a, well, there may be a South African factor. The fact well, that I, what, um, South Africa... Uh, South Africa's the new Zimbabwe, isn't it? Or if it's not the new Zimbabwe, it soon will be. It's um, not in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, you you read everything about it, then you actually go to South Africa, and you see most things are actually working extremely well. Some things are getting wrong, but it is working. And the people in government, rather than the people making a noise on the fringes, do have a reasonably good understanding of what's necessary. Mm. So are you, you're not concerned about the um, murdering white farmers, about drive-by shootings in Johannesburg, um, about uh, demands for further uh, black economic empowerment, uh, about demands for uh, redistribution of wealth. You're not, not concerned about any of those? Well, the thing was always going to be an issue and I think will continue to be an issue. The farmland thing is also in its way an issue um, and you must, one must expect that. Uh, so far, they have not done anything similar to you know, what happened in Zimbabwe. Uh, I would say that they have done what's necessary. Of course, companies and people make a huge noise and fuss but it's actually, it's not worked badly. And my comparison always is the process of bumiputrization in Malaysia, and it's not completely dissimilar. Some of the same lessons have been learned, and some of the same things have been done. And, uh, I th and Malaysia came through fine and continues to grow. I think South Africa can do that. The experience we had at Chipi uh, with our partners, that Chipi being the mine in Jupiter, uh, with our partners there in St. Bentley, is they were able to put up, essentially, their share of the development and have been good partners since. Uh, so it can work. What drives the manganese price? Uh, over 90%, maybe 95% of it goes into steel making, where it's an essential additive at about 0.7 plus or minus percent. 
um, it has various uh, it, it has various um, characteristics that improve the steel, so which make it necessary for some kinds of steel. For example, for railway lines, uh, which have to withstand a lot of certain kinds of stress, you actually have to use high manganese steel, 17-18%. This means that uh, manganese is one of the one of, one of the commodities which most is of which most is produced after iron ore itself, but it's almost invisible because with 95% of it or so going into the steel market, you don't see it. It's there. The interesting thing in the last few years has been that manganese, together with nickel and cobalt, is one of the three components of the cathodes of electric batteries. Uh, for example, one popular battery type over the last few years has been NMC, which was equal parts nickel, manganese, cobalt, uh, and then, of course, lithium in the anode. Now, uh, at the moment, the proportion of nickel is being increased slightly at the, at the expense of cobalt in manufacturing these batteries. But once certain problems have been solved, range and so on, I would expect people to be really looking to put more manganese in their batteries, because it's a whole lot cheaper than either cobalt or uh, nickel. So that gives you a structural growth story rather than just being sort of semi-cyclical with the uh, core steel thing. Yes. I mean, steel will have jog along, have a bit of growth, but that 4 or 5% that isn't going into steel will be impacted by the demand and the margin for electric car batteries, I think. Okay, well, going back to Jupiter, it pays a dividend. Is the dividend from Jupiter enough to cover your PLC costs? Uh, yes, it is. Or it has been, I should say. It has been, yeah. and you'd assume that the dividend going forward is going to be at least enough to cover the costs? If, if you're talking about base admin costs, yes, yes. If we talk about doing things proactively, um, like what we've been doing in Congo, then uh, obviously it's not enough to cover all of that. But what it does mean is that worst-case situation, if we decided we really couldn't do anything because the market was so bad, we could just slim down and live off our Jupiter for a while. Right. Uh, now, you recently uh, indicated you, you had your, some mined gold prospects in Kenya, which got stolen from you. Uh, you've indicated you're going to get them back. Yes. Between you and me, are you going to try and bring them into production, which again would be more cost, etc., or are you going to try and flog them someone? Well, if you had a gold project that was really high grade, I think the thing you would do would be to try to develop it yourself. You know, go all out, all in, say, to do that. Um, if you've got something where the grade is on the low side, then you would really look for a company which was much bigger financially and therefore had a much lower cost of capital and therefore a much lower hurdle rate to take it on. Because if you're one of the biggest gold companies, maybe you can be making a mine work successfully at 0.6 gram a tonne. Um, if you're an artisanal miner, you're not going to be looking at anything less than 20, 25 grams a tonne. The, um, for, in most of the new mines being produced are coming out at 2.2, 2.3 grams a tonne. And in West Africa, which has been slightly less explored, or Congo, it would be higher. Now, where are we? We're slightly on the light end of that. <clears throat> and uh, I think that given the amount of capital it's going to need, 
it would be sensible for us to have the heavy lifting done by a company more capable to, to do it. That's your way of saying that you're going to be likely to flog them. What do you reckon they could be worth? Well, we try and do a deal whereby we continue to participate either by equity uh, or by um, royalties uh, as we proceeded. And we'll see what kind of a deal we can do. Uh, what's it going to be worth? I mean, I don't know. Because the 1.2 million ounces that we have at the moment was a sort of starter resource. The next steps we were going to take before we got into the litigation was um, to do more drilling in the areas where we saw more potential and higher grades, which would have meant that probably we could increase both the number of ounces in the resource and simultaneously the grade. If you're getting up to a, 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 a resource which is one and a half, two million ounces, it's got to be worth a few quid. Yeah. I mean, North Mara, which is uh, Acacia, Lao Africa barracks, mine just a few miles to the south over the Tanzanian border, parallel to us, is basically the same thing we are. Um, and uh, what we have is an extremely attractive, <coughs> interesting asset. Everybody goes to Kenya that I hear about including Chinese companies, they look all around and they then come back to our area and say, this is what we like. And of course, they sometimes they go illegally onto our land and do some work. And so. But um, so far, the government's had to say to them, ah, this thing's in court, or this thing is you know, in the hands of these people. Um, and so uh, they have come to us and we have some prospects to do something there. I mean, uh, after the initial minister who caused us the problem was replaced, I think it became obvious that the government wanted out of the litigation and the agreement in principle to give us a fair hearing and a following wind <clears throat> was made. But actually moving from that to implementation, us getting it back, took time. And there were one or two reasons for that. First of all, a presidential election in the middle. Secondly, the new 2016 Mining Act coming in and having to be implemented, which meant that new licenses we got would have to be under the new Mining Act uh, through the transitional provisions. And so here we are now, and what I think are the very, very last stages or stage. Okay. Now, uh, we'll go briefly on to uh, Cobalt's prospects. This is in... Uh, Congo, is it, or the Democratic Republic of Congo? DRC, Congo, yeah. Right. Um, isn't that a bit of a hellhole? Uh, no. <clears throat> I don't know if you have <clears throat> read that book by a couple of Danes. Um, I think it's called Factfulness. Um, and uh, <clears throat> they, went to, they had work for international institutions, and they went around giving talks to people, including at Davos and so on, where they show how much progress the world has made. That you know, infant mortality, even in the worst places, is so low now. Uh, even in the worst countries, the number of women receiving education is such a high percentage. Everyone gets this wrong. So life expectancy, education, um, disease, the, on all these metrics, the whole of humanity, not just the company, countries that we know well, have gone up. Uh, Congo was making the same progress. You have a Africa that came away from colonial status, and there are only one or two universities, Fort Hare in South Africa, one or two in Ghana, something in Nigeria. In Malawi, when Dr. Banda became president, 
he was the only graduate in the country. You see where they are today. And Congo, of course, has lagged because of Mobutu's kleptocracy. But what I can tell you is that since 2000, particularly since 2010, the expansion of the tertiary sector in Congo has been nothing short of dramatic. And you do meet a lot of well-educated and intelligent people. And this is underestimating. We hear bad stories about Africa. What we don't hear is the undercurrent of progress. And you, you look at it, how, how many times the African Union in recent years has intervened to make sure that governments gave up power peacefully. Uh, that's remarkable too. And Congo has just had its first peaceful transition from a president to an opposition president in an election. And uh, uh, I find it not a difficult place to work. It is probably true that the legal system compared with Kenya is a little underdeveloped, more recent. There are still some justices administered by military courts, which you might think is suboptimal. But there is now, there are now legal codes and uh, there are lawyers that have been trained up and they will educate other lawyers who will be better. So it's not all the way there, but it's, it's as good as or better than a lot of other countries. And the important thing is that in the mining area in the east near Zambia, there are so many big foreign companies now uh, that uh, the, the people come in contact with them, the local people, and everybody learns from that. And the state mining company itself, Jecamin, uh, General de Carrière de Mines, is a remarkable company, which is the direct lineal descendant of the old Belgian uh, Société Générale, Société Générale de Mines that he was. But uh, you can go into their core sheds, and despite civil war, despite everything, you can find drill core going back to the 1920s and 1930s, all neatly labelled in boxes that are still there and haven't perished, and through all the things that have happened since, it's been preserved. The custody is there. Now, I can't think of any other company or any other country that would have that. Um, so there are positives and negatives, and uh, we overstate the negatives at the moment. You, you announced the cobalt, uh, this, this potential opportunity, uh, way back uh, last year. It's, it's, it seemed a bit sort of slow making progress. This is true. Uh, and Kenya, of course, was slow making progress. If you're doing things in Africa, you know, what I said about the expectations of investors, that things happen very quickly. And the time frames on which we have to operate, uh, they can be different. At the moment, luckily, Kenya is going very fast uh, in you know, recent weeks. And Congo has been going a bit slow. And we need to go out there and uh, help along some things there. But in each case, the issues get solved by diplomacy and quiet discussion and lots of face time and regularity of contact and Do you have to bribe things people? going to go away. Hmm? Do you have to bribe people? No, well obviously one great benefit we have as Englishmen is that we can just tell them we can't because we'll be in prison. Right, right, okay. Oh, I thought that's being a disadvantage that you can't but anyway, I, I, I don't... Kenya, we had the choice between 
obviously between bribery and litigation, and we chose litigation. Very sensible. Now, uh, uh, back to cobalt in uh, in Congo. Um, what are you hoping to achieve there, and under what sort of time frame? Well, uh, we have a joint venture with Jay Camille that we need to get moving on, and where Jay uh, Camille is allowing us to explore and do feasibility on some of its assets, and. One at least of these assets is an exceptionally good project, which has been mined in the past. Why do they stop mining? Well, Jacobin went through a period where it had no money because everything had been looted, <clears throat> and where it had to. Uh, uh, yeah, I think. Oh well, why did it stop mining? I think there's actually a simpler answer to that. It was in the days when it was being mined. Uh, people were looking at five to six percent copper as a cutoff grade, or you know maybe later two point eight percent copper as a cutoff grade, and they were just looking really in the oxides at the top there. And in a country where there's so much copper still to be found, because if you look at Ivanhoe's latest discovery, I mean that's a really good grade copper um, and cobalt. Uh, why would you go and mine down to the grades that other people in other countries are doing? You're spots. You were spots. I've looked through old logbooks in the Jacamine uh, offices uh, going back 40 or 50 years, and you can see something that is several percent copper. And in the, the, the little copper plate handwritten note in the margin says stereo barrel. Right. Well, sorry, I thought this was a cobalt prospect. Why am I being, am I being stupid here? The copper and the cobalt. Uh, go together in some parts of, uh, right. of the Congo, in certain strata, for example, the R2. So you were, it was mined as a copper play, but you view it as a cobalt play? Uh, I'm saying that you'd get copper and cobalt from it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and won't it cost a lot of money, which Red Rock doesn't have, uh, to develop this? Well, um, it is an existing open pit, which was backfilled to about 60 feet when they went away from it, and uh, we have looked at the old drill results, and we have modelled it and worked out how much was left behind that we already know about without any drilling, and um, we'd like to validate that and get it brought up to date by a firm of consultants, and then I think it would be something that you could actually raise money on. Mm. Could you, you just um, sort of track it out? If it's yeah. an open, am I being stupid I again? What you'd initially do probably is uh, you'd produce it and you'd supply it to one of the many plants. So if you did it on that model, surely the capital cost would be very limited. It could be, yes. I mean, uh, of the world's cobalt, more than 50% comes from uh, Congo. And of that 50%, I would guess that more than 50% comes from within a few miles of where we are. So the number of processing facilities is quite high. So in theory, you could just minimise the capex by just putting in diggers, digging stuff out, putting it in lorries and shipping it down the road? We'd have to do something, yeah, because we wouldn't be wanting to go into the full-scale um, uh, cost of, of a mine because you look at our size, we just simply couldn't do it. Okay, but that model would be economic, you believe? Yes, Okay, 
Now, uh, before we go, um, two final questions. You were once uh, an investor in uh, the Horse Hill project. Uh, I see that a drilling rig has just arrived on site. Do you feel that you should have hung in there? Are you missing out by not being exposed to Horse Hill now? No, because I think uh, we always knew there were some different horizons, that the sandstone horizons near the surface, which were the original target, didn't really produce the results expected, weren't of the size expected. Um, When you went deeper, you went into the limestones, and because of some fracturing, and because it turned out this had been in the oil window, it had been cooked up sufficiently for the kerogen to have transmuted into oil, and uh, the the strata was cracked enough for there to be some flow through it. Um, There were were high expectations, and the suggestion was being made that even without stimulation, you could produce huge amounts of oil from it. I think the exploration since then has rather gone against that. Um, So I think there'll be limited quantities. It will require chemical stimulation. Maybe you, if you wanted to really produce a lot, you'd probably need to do some fracking. That's that's not going to happen, is it? Um, I can't predict the future, but I think that there are a lot of easier places to operate than um, Surrey, because uh, there's a lot of people there who will hold you up and things will take years and years, but in Texas, wouldn't. Yeah, so uh, assuming there is no fracking, it, what is there? It will. It is from what we now know about the drilling. You believe it would require quite a lot of chemical stimulation, and the odds are it's not going to be a hugely big prospect. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with the chemical stimulation and everything that they might have to do. Uh, it's very widely used. In fact, you know, if you want to use the most expansive definition of fracking, you could say that there's no oil well in the North Sea that doesn't use it. But um, I think that the process of exploring and approval is going to take time. You need a lot of security. That increases the cost. Um, I don't think it's a huge target. And therefore, I am politely skeptical about the value. Very diplomatic. I can see how uh, you get on well using those diplomatic skills in, in the Congo. Final question. Um, if you had to bet the ranch on one aimlisted share and it wasn't Red Rock or any other company you're involved in, what would it be? Uh, no company that I'm involved in. Yes. Uh, then I, I actually haven't given that any thought. I would need to, to think about it. I don't know right. the answer. I mean, at the moment, nothing has really excited me apart from, of course, the things I'm involved with. Okay. All right. On that weak note, thank you very much for your time. We'll speak yeah, again. Thank we have you. Thanks. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Andrew Bell. I'm aware he's a controversial figure. Uh, as we mentioned in the interview, at the height of the last gold market, uh, he wasn't a controversial figure. Everyone loved him. The shares were uh, almost 20p. They'd been basically half a p a penny. They'd been a penny stock, and they went up to 20p. 
Uh, you read the bulletin boards. And there were people saying, you know, if he wanted to have more children with their wives, just, just, just get in touch. He could do no wrong. Uh, of course, uh, as Mr. Bell knew, uh, that wasn't going to last forever. The moral of that story is if you own a stock and it goes through the roof, not necessarily because of fundamentals, but because the whole market is crazy. Uh, it's infected with irrational exuberance. Take your profits. Uh, now, uh, these days, there are a lot of people who are only too keen to knock Mr. Bell. But one thing you would have to say is, uh, how many of the companies that were around in the mining space on AIM back in 2008-9 are still around today? The majority have gone tits up or have turned into something else. Uh, we see just today Alexander Mining has finally given up the ghost and is now turning itself into a more or less lack of cash shell. Uh, another one bites the dust, but Bell battles on. Andrew Bell is my friend. I make no bones about that. Uh, when I was at my lowest back in 2012, uh, very few people were prepared to offer out the hand of friendship. Mr. Bell did, uh, to his credit, and I will never forget that. I haven't tipped the shares uh, over many years, although many other people have. Uh, I did so last autumn. Uh, and I'm slightly underwater on the tip. I ate my own medicine. I own the shares. Uh, and I would hope uh, that uh, they would be well over a penny uh, before too long. It strikes me if you're buying them today at 0.5p, uh, you are paying a discount to those shares in Jupiter. If uh, either Kenya or the Congo Cobalt project come off, uh, then uh, quite plausibly, you're going to be paying a 50% uh, discount to Ness Assets. Either of those countries' operations coming off and the shares should be well over a penny. If both come off, they could be materially higher. I'm sure over the past eight or nine years uh, of misery for shareholders in Red Rock and indeed the whole AIM-listed mining sector, uh, many folks won't believe me, and uh, it is their right. Uh, they can ignore everything that myself or Mr. Bell says. Uh, uh, and uh, it's your call. It's your call. Uh, I was going to be interviewing someone else on today's Share Profits Radio, uh, that being someone from Phalanx PLC, another company where I own shares and actually where I am well underwater uh, uh, on those shares. For various reasons, the interview didn't take place. Uh, they were dicking me around, and life is too short. I have shown faith in Phalanx, uh, uh, even though it has disappointed investors. It had results out the other day, which were, quite frankly, shit. Uh, the company promised so much and has failed to deliver. I remember attending a presentation uh, by the company's chair, then-chairman, Mike Reed and John Blamere, uh, which he was talking about how the deal which the company had struck with Wind Solar or whatever it is, an American company, could be delivering profits on its own of $3 million for Phalanx. Now, that may still happen, but it has not happened within the time frame indicated at that presentation, which was uh, well over a year ago. Moreover, the existing business uh, is growing only very, very slowly. The company has made a number of acquisitions. Uh, either the acquisitions have been shit or the core business which were behind it has been shit or potentially both. The company has not delivered. 
I am of the view that the company will deliver, uh, but much slower than expected. I do believe that the uh, joint venture agreement with the American company, whose name I temporarily can't remember, will come good and that the company will be profitable. And that's why I continue to hold the shares and believe that they are at around 2p quite cheap. Nonetheless, I see today a couple of announcements from the company. One is that the new chairman, Alex Hambro, has bought a million shares at just under 2p. Well, it's not an enormous investment for him, but it's a step in the right direction, and that I applaud. Uh, The other announcement is that large numbers of shares, 28 million, are being awarded under option uh, to Mr. Reid and to the finance director, Mr. Selby. Uh, If all of the options uh, are exercised, Both of them will have picked up stakes of 3% in the company. One third of the shares under option, which have an exercise price of about 1.95p, i.e. around about today's price, are exercisable immediately. Why the hell didn't these guys just go into the market? Why give them an option? Uh, The others, the other two thirds, half are exercisable if the share price stays above 2.89p, that being a 50% 50% uplift on the share price as a close of business yesterday, if it stays above there for a month, and the other 50% if there's a 100% uplift in the share price for a period of one month. The company will argue that this incentivizes the individuals to work harder. That's bollocks. It's just not true. Uh, I don't believe options ever exercise people. I get company chief executives and finance directors, indeed Mr. Selby, Uh, uh, contacting me frequently saying how bloody hard they're working for the company. Well, if they're working bloody hard already, why do they need extra incentive to work hard? Uh, The incentive should be work hard, deliver on your forecast, and you get to keep your job. Not uh, that you get to get a handout at the expense of shareholders. There is no evidence whatsoever that the award of share options uh, 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 incentivizes senior executives within companies to work harder uh, or to deliver better results. No evidence for that at all. I would rather that the individuals in question uh, put their hands in their pocket and bought shares in the market. That is a tangible evidence of faith. Uh, It aligns the interests of management with those of shareholders. Now, I'm aware that in the past, both Mr. Selby uh, and Mr. Reid have bought shares, but they should be buying more. Getting shares under option is a one-way bet. You risk no capital. Your interests are therefore not aligned with those of shareholders. We have risked our capital. They get a free bet. If the share price goes up, they get free money. If the share price doesn't go up, they haven't lost money. If the share price goes down, they haven't lost money. We, the ordinary shareholders, have lost money. Now, if the share price uh, in Phalanx goes up, if it doubles, uh, 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 then as it happens, even if it doubles, I will still be out of the money on my investment. I and many others. I invested in a placing at 4p, Uh, The shares were once 8p. So even if the stock doubles, many of us will still be out of the money. Uh, On the other hand, what we will be is diluted because these two gentlemen will be able to exercise their options sitting on immediate profits uh, of an awful lot. Uh, 
and they will own 6% of the company. We will have our interest in the company diluted by 6%. That is not fair. The, it doesn't incentivize people. This is just a one-way bet. Heads, management wins, and we lose because we are diluted. Tails, we lose, and management loses nothing. That's not right. That's not how capitalism is meant to work. Despite all of this, and I, I regard this as irritating, and frankly, Mr. Selby and Mr. Reid and the rest of the board have kicked we shareholders in the gonads with this announcement. I find it annoying, but I do believe that the shares are cheap and that the shares will go up. Uh, however, at some point, <coughs> I will sell. And I will sell, uh, not before telling uh, readers of my site to sell, but I will sell because I don't really want to be involved in a company where the management quite so obviously give we shareholders a kick in the gonads. There is so much more I could have talked about today uh, with Chef Office Radio. I'd have to wait for another time. Uh, or maybe you'll miss out on it altogether because I will be talking about it as I do every day on my podcast on share profits, the Bearcast. Uh, it costs just five ninety nine a month to get access to all three articles a month on share profits, including my daily Bearcast. Uh, I know uh, that uh, about eighty percent of the people who listen to Share Profits Radio don't subscribe to Share Profits. You're cheapskates. You don't know what you're missing out on, and it only costs you $5.99 a month. Join now uh, and join the entertainment. Uh, it's not just podcasts. We have scoops. We have groundbreaking news. I will, in fact, I am working on a major, major story. It's taken me three weeks, and I'm still putting it together. Uh, but that will absolutely blow your socks off. Uh, a, uh, a really very huge fraud indeed. Anyhow, uh, that will be for uh, those who are not cheapskates. If you're not a cheapskate, I'll speak to you later uh, with the Bearcast. If you are a cheapskate, uh, I'll be back in a week uh, uh, with another Share Profits Radio. Thanks once again to Yorkville Advisors for sponsoring this show. If you want to know more about what they do, go to yorkvilleadvisors.com. Uh, if you want to stop being a cheapskate, go to shareprofits.com and join the website now. I'll speak to you either later or if you're a cheapskate, in a week's time. Goodbye.